please, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 uh, through 10. And we're going to reflect this morning on a centering reality that is all about Christ. And uh, as we selected the music for today and reflected upon the state of the culture, there are many who are weary and brokenhearted. There are many who are bitter and embittered. There are many who are searching for some kind of hope, some kind of peace, some kind of promise in a world that affords none of that. For we as believers, there's a centering reality that reminds us that uh, in Christ, everything's going to be okay. In Christ, we have hope and promise. In Christ, we have the one who has come to deliver us, and His promise is peace to those who believe. And I have to believe in a culture like in which we live today, there's a craving, an insatiable desire for peace when everything around us is changing and restlessness seems to permeate every corner of our culture, but even more importantly and pointedly, every corner of our mind and our world and our life and our lifestyle. And I thought it important as we wind down the lazy days of summer and gear up toward fall ministry, as we come to this table to to really focus on the things that matter most. And this morning, we're going to return to our normal way of celebrating the Lord's Supper with the two separate distributions of, of the bread and then the cup and built in times of silence so that a man can examine himself before he eats and drinks of the cup. If you're here this morning and would rather not participate in an open cup or cracker or wafer, we'd encourage you that both on the bottom floor and up in the balcony, there are provided for you some sealed containers like we've been using. Uh, I stopped to think about this for more than two years, believe it or not. Boy, I don't know about you. I just wish things would go back to normal. Anyone else with me? I don't talk about that a little bit, but, but if you're not ready, there are sealed cups that you can, you can go to. But in this desire for things to get back to normal, I think it's important to understand and realize that there's this necessary danger to romanticize the past, what we call the good old days, and to believe that somehow yesterday was better than today. But it's a lie, and it's a deep-seated lie, deeply entrenched in most of our lives. Oh, if we could only go backwards. To do what? To make the same mistakes and to relive the same heartaches and disasters? Now, first of all, there are no do-overs in life. Yesterday's gone. You can't undo it. You can't relive it. You can't unravel it. It is gone. And I know that the older you get, the the more a temptation it is to romanticize the past, all those good old days. But if you're honest and reflect upon some of those good old days, there were hard days mixed into those good days, and challenges that God was faithful to see us through. So in spite of desiring to go back to normal, there is this 
desire to romanticize the past, and we have to be really careful of that. At the same time, we must realize that we live in a culture where confusion abounds, confusion about race and sex and gender, and confusion about truth, confusion about first things, confusion about those perspicuous matters of life that all of us have the capacity, believer or unbeliever, have the capacity to see our fixed things, and they never change. They never change. And yet our world is changing, and confusion abounds in so many different ways. Even in the last couple of weeks, we, we understand how fast and far encompassing the change is. Talk about confusion abounding. You can't buy gas cars, but you can't charge your electricians either. So help me out. Is it horse and buggy again? Confusion just abounds everywhere. You can kill children, but you can't stand for the sanctity of life because that makes you somehow the enemy. How in the world did we get here? How is it that unless we agree with the powers that be, the cultural elites and our education institutions and athletics and Hollywood and in charge, those political elites, how is it that if we don't agree with them, we're somehow a threat to democracy? We're the enemy all of the sudden. If we go back and reflect upon the truth, and as we really understand reality, what did you expect? What did you expect? There are clear warnings in Scripture that days like today were going to come, clear instruction that we would be living in a different world, a different reality. And for many of us, it's a, it's a world that doesn't even resemble the world five years ago maybe even two and a half years ago, and we wonder, what in the world happened? Well, I'm not here to lament what's taking place in the culture because we were given a heads up on that, a fair warning. There's also seismic changes that have taken place in the course of my lifetime in the professing church. the jettison of the sanctity of personal responsibility with a desire to blame everybody else for our issues, the jettison of the sanctity of life, creating some socioeconomic and cultural pyramid that, that somehow determines that some people are better than other people, and even if we reverse that social pyramid, it is still a, still a respect for persons that robs every last person, no matter of their ethnicity, gender, race, or color, the inherent dignity that is rooted in this reality that God has created us in His image. There is indeed a sanctity of life, and God is not a respecter of persons. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? So why are we fighting the same fights in the church? I'm troubled by that. I'm alarmed by that, and then I am reminded of that when Paul writes in the first century. That's a long time ago for those of you who 
Don't do math quickly in your head. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's the evangelicalism that we're living in today. It's not so much a blatant attack on the sanctity of life or the sanctity of personal responsibility or the sanctity of marriage or the instruction of Scripture. I want you to know that this is an attack, a rejection, or at least the minimizing of God's people, the authority of the Word of God. It is either true or it's not. It's either all true or none of it's true. It is the full authority of the God who sits in heaven, or it's not. There are no middle grounds. There are no differences of opinions here. And as I think of where the church is headed and the debates and the conflicts and the things that are dividing those professing believers today in churches, I hear over and over in my head the words of R.C. Sproul, maybe you too, what's wrong with you people? And then I say, wait a second, maybe he's talking about us. Maybe he's talking about me. Maybe he was talking about you. You know, with all that is taking place, the words that we've been studying in Ecclesiastes proved to be so relevant for the culture in which we live. The writer laments what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us and there'll be no remember of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to me among those who come thereafter. As much as the world changes, it stays the same, the writer says. Well, a glimpse into history would remind us that that is true. It's always been true. We may be living in a culture and in a world in which the restraint of evil is less than what it was in other generations, but the world has always been horribly broken. The world has always rejected a transcendent God. The world has always rejected any semblance of absolute truth. Concern has, it is slipping into the churches. And that is cause for alarm. So I believe it's important that we find some centering reality in the midst of everything that changes, something that we can grab onto, something that we can hold onto, something that we can believe in, and something that will sustain us no matter how bad it gets. And I'm convinced it's not as bad as it can be or will be. So what might that thing be? Well, that's why we're gathered here this morning, to find that centering reality and to find hope in the midst of a hopeless 
world. Father, bless us as we spend time reflecting upon our world and the hope that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless us as we continue to sing about the promises of Christ, our King, being reminded that we must find joy, reasons to be thankful, to count our blessings. Cause us, as we reflect this morning, to look at something outside of ourselves and even this world of experience and existence that we know, to find a foundation and a centering reality that can and will never waver, will never fall apart, it will never disappoint us. Help us to find that place in an increasingly changing world where the speed of change is so exponentially quicker than it's ever been in my lifetime. And in our lucid moments, as we've learned even from the writer of Ecclesiastes, Keep us from pointing the finger at everybody else. The courage to ask ourselves, maybe it's me. Maybe I've lost sight of the things that matter most. Center us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we think about where the world is and the reality that it's always been the place that we know, maybe not to the same degree, I've been reminded several times in the last couple of days of something that, that is haunting in some ways. Normal isn't coming back. Je- Jesus is. I don't know about you, that's important to hang on to. If you know anything about me, you know normal and sameness and routine is what makes me tick. I like that. I drive the same way. I stop at the same places. I do the same thing. And I like it that way. And I don't like when that changes. I don't like it when my routines are are interrupted and I want normal back. When asked what is normal, it's whatever I do. Well, that doesn't seem quite fair, does it? What is normal? Truth of the matter is, over the course of my life, things have changed and are always changing. Yet there's nothing new under the sun. That's always been a reality. So much so, again, that in that first century, Paul writes to Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self and lovers of money and proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, and swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure 
rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then he gives us a simple plan of action. Avoid such people. But what he doesn't give us is an out to say yesterday was better than today. He said it's always been this way from the first century. That's the words of Paul. What did you expect? Well, if you're anything like me, I expected normal. But normal is not a reality. And the world is forever changing. The challenges, although they come in different ways, are still the same. To Paul writing to Titus, as he pastor says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What age? The age of the godless, what he just wrote Timothy about, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. There's a difference between those who don't believe and those who do. And it's a difference that begins with our mindset It extends to our behaviors and our attitudes, and it's hinged upon the reality of what Christ has done for us and the promise of the future, a better day is coming. When you juxtapose those two things against each other, it places us in a world that is falling apart and godless by nature, hanging on to the hope that the next world is a better place, but having to live in this world, and it's like we're caught in between those two things. But I sense that in many ways, being caught in those two things is just the way it is. And it's not going to change until we hear the sound of a trumpet. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So as we negotiate this, as we wrestle through this, as we deal with this, as we call black, black, and white, white, and deal with truth and error and all of those things, we live stumbling through the godless age which we inhabit, and we cling to a hope, and we live a godly life in the midst of all of the godlessness of our age, waiting. There's the crux right there, waiting. I don't like to wait either. How about you? I don't like to wait in my prayer life. I don't like to wait in my personal life. I've got things to do. I'm a busy guy. There's places to go. I don't like to wait. How about you? But we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting some 19 centuries after Paul first wrote that. I want to talk about perseverance and patience. (laughs) The church has been waiting for a long, long time. But at least we have it square. This world is bad He's preparing a place for us. He will come again and receive us unto Himself, and everything's going to be okay. So we live in this tension, but at least we've got that straight. Is that true? Or do you find yourself in many ways succumbing to the, to the same realities of the writer of Ecclesiastes? 
who knew in his mind and in his wisdom how this ought to play out, yet somehow failed to find the will to make that a reality. Perhaps this rings a bell. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I expended in doing, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. See, he lived his life knowing the same things we just spoke of. But as he lived them out in his context, in culture, he lost his perspective, and life became not about the blessed hope of the return of our King. But whatever happens day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, under the sun, he went about making a name and a life for himself. And he gets to the end of all of that, and you know this because we've studied it, and declare, so I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. And all his vanity and his striving after the wind. What's the matter with this guy, anyhow? What's the matter with him? He cried out to God and said, this is what I want from you. And God said, this is what I'll give you. The very thing that he asked for, wisdom. And then he set about to sort out life and all of that godly wisdom. And somewhere along the road, he lost his moorings. He, he lost his sense of direction. He began to wander, and his mind and eyes were occupied horizontally with the things of, of this earth, and he knew better. You're a lot like that guy who wrote Ecclesiastes. I'm, I'm a lot like that guy who wrote Ecclesiastes. And just like him answering the questions that he was asking of himself, I ask you this morning, now how'd that work out for you? I got this, God. I'll take it from here. I'll call you if I need you. How'd that work out for you? Never works out. It's a dead end. It's vanity and grasping after the wind. Funny how you know the wind is there, but you can't see it. It's grasping after what we know is real, but we can't see it, and it needs to be lived out in a different kind of way. So he says in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, so guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen, for to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil, but we do. So do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. God, in verse 7 of chapter 5, is the one you must fear. As you live this life, it is God alone that you must respect, that you must honor, that you must dread, that you must come to grips with the reality that He is in heaven, and you are not in heaven, and you must live out this life grasping this thing that you cannot see, believing in the things that God has spoken, and trusting that a better day 
is coming. In fact, he wraps up his whole treatise by saying, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And then a very haunting conclusion. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We're going to answer how we live this life. We're going to answer for every idle word. We will stand before a holy and righteous God and give an account. How we navigated a godless world. How's that working out for you? Sobering thoughts. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount reminds us in a more positive way to those who are following him, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, giving us this image of of the people, the Christ followers being those who who would bring some some preserving of, of the realities from Genesis onward. He continues, you're the light of the world in the midst of darkness. You are the light, and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Or do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all of your house in the same way? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we could somehow put aside all of the distractions that easily capture our hearts and minds that the writer of Ecclesiastes spoke of and get a glimpse of of the realities of what Christ spoke in that Sermon on the Mount, we would realize that that God has placed those who trust Him through Christ as as salt and light. And it's, in an essence, the conscience of a culture, those who will live right and believe right and think right and do right, and as the conscience of a nation that is on the fast track to pagan godliness, Don't you suppose that that is going to cause an adverse reality in the world in which you're living? Don't you think that you're going to be vilified and hated for standing up for the sanctity of life? Of course you will. Of calling out the darkness? Of course you will. Of turning on the light in a dark room where people's eyes hurt because they're blinded by the light? That's the role of those who follow Christ to make a difference in their world, to live differently. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes was struggling with, and that's what Jesus is clearly speaking of in the Sermon on the Mount, the conscience of an age in which we live. But don't be surprised if you're vilified and hated for it. Yet Solomon does remind us in Ecclesiastes of the sovereignty of God. And in some of his more lucid moments, he realizes that the day and age in which he's lived and the number of days that God has entrusted to him on the face of the earth 
was under divine sovereignty. Sovereignty is a hard thing for some of us. It means God is in absolute control, and most of us think God is mostly in control. Sorry, that's not the way this works. God is always in control. Then how come He's not doing something about this? Oh, I've got great, great news for you. He has through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the centering reality. There's where Solomon in some of his more lucid moments said, for everything there's a season and a time for every manner under the heaven. Somebody has orchestrated all of this. Someone bigger than I is in charge, in control. He knows the end from the beginning, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. Do you believe that? Everything. Kind of challenges my preferred way of life, my tendency toward demanding normal. (laughs) When you live in abnormal times, the same God who is on the throne when things are going the way you wish them to go, it's the same God who's on the throne when things go sideways. You think that He doesn't notice? You think that He doesn't know? You think that He doesn't still control everything that happens on the face of the earth. I know in our human minds that's a really difficult concept, but I'm here to tell you, He knows. He knows. The writer of Ecclesiastes knew, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, and nothing can be added to it, and nothing taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before Him. Oh, it brings up many questions in our mind to the character and nature and plan of God. But the truth of the matter is, our God is on the throne. He is sovereign. In case you're wondering when we're going to get to the text, well, it's now. For there's no greater example of the sovereignty of God than your salvation. Listen to how he describes it as he writes to the church at Ephesus. And you were dead, dead, dead. You understand what he's saying, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. You can clean up people's external appearance, but only Christ can cleanse the soul. Only forgiveness can remedy sin. Only God can make the crooked straight. Do we believe that? Well, no. I thank God I'm not like those people. You were exactly like those people. You were children of wrath, fit for the destruction, judgment. You were just like the sons of disobedience, driven by the passions of your flesh. You were no different than the world that you vilify today. But what a great transition. Now he's going to give us some good news in the midst of that bad news. By the way, churches fall and pray to a false gospel. 
that no longer believes that man is totally depraved and could do nothing about his condition. We've, we've fallen into this trap of believing, well, people aren't so bad afterwards. It's blasphemous. We're wretched children of sin and vessels of wrath. One of the most intimidating verses in the book of the Revelation is a description of the second coming of Christ in judgment. The writer John writes, from the mouth, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Listen to this. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, because they were children of wrath. So are you. So are you. But in divine sovereignty, in God's own mind and for His glory, let's stop trying to figure that out. You didn't do this. He did. Praise be to God, right? Stop trying to figure it out. But God being rich in mercy, not giving you what you deserve, and what did you deserve? Wrath. The fierceness, the fullness of His wrath, not giving you what you deserve. Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. It is God's favor to you and in His divine sovereign plan that we will never figure out in eternity past, God said to those who know Him, mine. And He carried out that task through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. He speaks of that in the text. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Kindness seems such a tame term for what God did. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Do you understand how different those two things are? And you know who did it? God did that, not you. The God who knows the end from the beginning and the God who knows the life that you live today, He did that for His glory. And thank God He did it for my good. My good. Because God did it, there's no room for boasting. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may, may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. It is a reminder that we have been rescued by God through Jesus Christ and put on this world for such a time as this to live as salt and light in this world, clinging to hope and promise in the world that is to come, and finding that the only centering reality that allows us to navigate that, that, par- paradise, that, that, that paradigm of 
here, but, but there, <laughs> things that are and things that are to come, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in many ways, the celebration of that at this, at this table. You and I are here at this very moment because our God sits on the throne, and this is a divine appointment. And you can lament the world, shake your fist at the godless, but you need to be reminded that that was you in time past. Through the grace of God, He has rescued you through His Son, Jesus Christ, and He's called you to live at such a time as this for His glory. And I don't know about you, for me, it's truly centering. Let me, let me share with you a simple truth. Sometimes, sometimes I think I'm preparing a message for you. But most of the time, He's preparing a message for me. How is life working out for you? Do you need a centering reality? As Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he gives us the centering reality. He speaks of receiving from the Lord that which he delivered to the believers at Corinth. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. That is the centering reality. Christ died for you according to the Scripture. He was buried and was raised again on the third day according to the Scripture. And eternity passed. He chose you before the foundation of the earth to be His prized possession, redeemed from all ungodliness, and placed on this world as a witness and testimony to the grace and the mercy, and the peace, and the patience of God toward us. It's easy to forget that in a world that is unraveling before our very eyes. And every once in a while, I need that centering reality where God whispers, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I've got this. I've got this. Don't waver. Don't walk away. I got this. Everything's going to be okay. Some might wonder why I say that all the time, because I need to hear that all the time. Everything's going to be okay. The centering reality of the reminders of coming to this table. can't live in both worlds. You either called out indifferent 
or you're just the same as the world that you vilify. And you can't live in both of those worlds. So before we come to the table, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, let a man examine himself for whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy fashion is guilty. We're going to close our service after we celebrate the Lord's Supper and one of the verses in the song it's a really good song. A great reminder. Deals with reconciling in your mind and reminding yourself of the glorious work of Christ. That He now owns you when you've been bought with a price and you are in the world at this time and this place for the glory of God alone. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone to live so that all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be my only boast is you. That is a centering reality. God has given us a gift to come to this table and be reminded of the things that matter most. I don't know about you. I needed that reminder this week. I needed that centering reality this week. I needed to hear the still, small voice of the Spirit saying, keep on keeping on. Everything's going to be okay. And maybe you did too. Or maybe you just didn't know it. And God is whispering to you today. Sean Dilmore, would you ask the blessing on the bread? Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for this church and this body. We can come together, worship you, and take the time to remember who we once were, who you are, and what you've done for us. Thank you for loving us so much that you would send your son to be hung on a cross and pay the penalty for our debt. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin we have through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. Thank you for the hope that we have that a better day is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.
In the same night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it, said to his disciples, this is my body which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. Bill Webb, would you ask the blessing in the cup? Our Heavenly Father, again, we're, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for this, this time of worship. We're thankful for this time of remembrance. As we remember what you did for us on that cross as you were crucified, beaten, and your body bled for us. As we prepare to take this cup, Lord, just and we examine ourselves as, as I examine myself, I just pray that we would be in the center of your will, that I would be in the center of your will. We're thankful again, Lord, for what you did for us on that cross. And again, so much to be thankful for. I ask this in your name. Amen.
Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me your all and all. Jesus paid it all. It's an old and an ancient hymn, but so, so true and pertinent for the life that we live today. In the same manner also when he had supped, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you. the great salvation that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reminder, the Lord's Supper centers us, reminds us of our hope, reminds us of the promises of God sustains us, the difficulties of life, and speaks to us, and all of our pain and hurt, and all of our struggles. We thank you for the body. We thank you for voices to sing and worship. We thank you for your word sets out and orders all things, and we thank you most. We thank you most for Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King, a centering reality that allows us to hang on and to know that a better day is coming. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would bless this benevolence offering in your body. Come alongside of those in our midst who are struggling and facing challenges. May we be able to bless them through your faithfulness to us as we live out the rest of our days under the centering reality of the gospel that changes everything. Glorify yourself in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.